This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Failure to plan is a plan to fail. First of all, to do this are great, and I'll encourage you to keep doing it, but the problem with them is they make people depressed. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we discuss simple tools to help you stay motivated and on track during your PhD. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 154. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Josh. Hey, Dan. I have a riddle for you. You ready for this? I love riddles. Let's go. What has two thumbs, a joke from 2012, and one Moderna vaccine? That guy. It's me. It's this guy. (laughs) I don't even know when that joke is from. Uh, I got my vaccine last week, and I am so elated. So thank you to science. You've been out to the club and the gym. Oh, my gosh. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. I'm just doing CPR on people that don't need it because I don't even care anymore. I think that could get you in trouble, but I will say I'm looking forward to you being fully immunized and immune and maybe back here in the studio with me. Someday. It's coming coming quick. And I I don't know how long I have to wait for the next one, but is it like a week, two weeks? I think it's what? Moderna, was that four weeks? I have no idea. Yeah. So you're, you're getting there closer than you were before. How does it feel? It feel you know, if, if you had the experience I did, Dan, you know, I've had lots of vaccines in my life, and this is the only one that I can recall where I really felt different. My mood lifted. I felt like this new lease on life uh, <laughs> by, by getting that vaccine. It was really, it was kind of unexpected for me, actually, but I felt different. Did you? Yeah, I, and I did a full, I stayed in my car the whole time. I did this full drive-through vaccine experience. And I'm sure that people thought I was a little bit uh, off my rocker because I thanked the guy who directed me into lane one and I thanked the guy standing at the corner of lane two (laughs) who I drove past and I waved at and I thanked the person who gave me the clipboard with a form. You know, I was just like so happy to be there. And, And I got my shot. I sat in my car for 15 minutes and played, you know, a game on my phone and drove off. And here I am. And here you are. Yeah, my wife took took a picture of, of me and the pharmacist who gave me the vaccine, and you can see me smizing, Dan. Uh, as oh, you you know <laughs> how you know how to do it, Josh. I know you you've got the smize down pat. Well, c- congratulations, Dan. Uh, that is great news, and I hope a lot of our listeners are also finding success in getting the vaccine and hopefully getting back to normal. We we have an ethanol here. So, what did you find for us this week? All right, Dan, you're going to enjoy this one. So we are drinking a Belgian style today. This is the Avery Brewing from Boulder, Colorado. This is their White Rascal Belgian style white ale. And the description is this is an ale with curacao, orange peel, and coriander. Uh, I know, Dan, you have been really intrigued by uh, Belgian ales lately. Yeah, you had me at Belgian, and uh, it does not disappoint. It tastes like a Belgian ale. I don't know what a white ale is specifically, but... um, I definitely enjoy this. I'm not. I don't know what curacao is supposed to taste like. I, I was curious too because it was very specific. You know, when I when I actually read this in the store, 
I think I was initially drawn like, oh, orange peel. I like a citrusy beer. Uh, but they are very specific that this is Curacao orange peel. So I did a little research, Dan. And there is another word for Curacao orange, the Lahara orange. That does not help, Josh. So this, this is pretty interesting. The Lahara or Curacao orange is the name of a citrus tree that grows on the island of Curacao. Um, and it's also the name for the fruit of this tree, the Lahara. And the Lahara is actually a descendant of a Valencia orange. Uh, and the fruit typically is too bitter and too fibrous to be considered edible. And so... You're really selling it. Really selling it. <laughs> bitter and fibrous. <laughs> so here's what I learned. So apparently in 1499, uh, the island of Curacao was conquered by the Spanish. And part of what the Spanish were hoping to accomplish on this island was they wanted to use it for agricultural development. And one of the plants, one of the key crops that they brought that they wanted to uh, propagate on the island of Curacao were Valencia oranges. However, it turns out the climate in Curacao was much too warm, much too arid for uh, Valencia oranges to really thrive. And so the Spanish sort of gave up on propagating these oranges but what happened is they planted a bunch, and so then suddenly there were all these forgotten, misfit Valencia orange plants that grew wild and abandoned, and not even the birds or animals would do anything with them. And so they sort of evolved into their own new species uh, and are now referred to as these Lahara oranges or these Curacao oranges. And Dan, I posted a photo in the show notes of a Curacao orange sitting next to a Valencia orange, and you can see they're... First, they're green, and they sort of have this little sort of sh more shriveledy, less juicy look than the uh, their cousin, the Valencia. So the one on the right-hand side is a Valencia, the bright orange round one, and the one on the left that looks like a lime almost is the Curacao? That's it. And apparently the fruit, completely inedible, but um, the peel is used mostly for beverages like this beer, but maybe more so known for liqueurs like Curacao which you've probably heard of, and in some cases, um, triple sec. Well, that is fascinating. And I love the evolution backstory to it, that life finds a way. <laughs> life finds a way, and if you can't eat something, you can probably make booze out of it. Here, here. Well, with that, Josh, uh, I would like to tell everybody about um, Promega's professional development work. You know, being a scientist is more than just running experiments and analyzing data. Whether you're giving a presentation at a conference or writing an article on your recent results, Promega can help. Head to the Student Resource Center to check out webinars on scientific writing and poster presentation starring you and me, Josh. Those were the days. Those are the days when we went places. Visit promega.com slash hellophd to learn more. We also want to thank our friends at BioBox. Do you work with human or mouse sequencing data? BioBox Analytics offers end-to-end -end data analytics for scientists and clinicians working with next-generation sequencing data. Leverage no-code bioinformatic pipelines, generate publication-ready plots at the click of a button, and consolidate insights from popular public databases. Sign up for the waitlist now and be the first to gain early access to your free BioBox account at biobox.io. So Dan, tell us a little bit about this interview you did this week. Yeah, I got in touch with Hugh Kearns. He is the author of uh, many books, one of them being 
planning for PhDs. And I, I found his website, ithinkwell.com.au, um, through a article that we covered back in episode 145 called How to PhD, 10 Tips from Hindsight. And that article had links to all of these resources that I thought were really valuable, one of them being these planning worksheets. And uh, they were free to download on ithinkwell.com.au. And I looked at them and I was like, well, I kind of need somebody to explain to me how to use these. And so I reached out to Hugh and he was willing to talk. So the real challenge for this interview, Josh, was take take our time, <laughs> add on 12 and a half hours, and then you figure out uh, how we managed to get in touch. So, so, you, it was, so you would I think, say planning this interview was uh, the tricky part. Yeah, maybe, maybe it was more. Than, it may have been more than twelve and a half hours. I have to think about about the math here. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it was nighttime where he was, and morning of that same day here. And so uh, we managed to work it out and had a great conversation about. I, I think there's really tough to do process, which is planning something that you've never done before in your life, and that is different from every other person who has done a PhD. Right? Nobody gets to do the same project. And when you said you discovered these planning worksheets, these were worksheets specifically for planning your PhD journey. Exactly. Yep. Well, that's fantastic, Dan. I think that has a lot of potential to be very useful for all of our listeners who are going through their PhD journey now. So let's take a listen. All right. So, yep. Um, my few cares. I um, have a few jobs. One is at a university here in Adelaide called Flinders University doing some lecturing and researching on the topic of self-management, how people manage themselves. And I'm especially interested in why people don't manage themselves. That's things like overcommitment, distraction, perfectionism, procrastination, all those things that grad students tend to be really, really good. <laughs> you, you don't have to tell research. us. <laughs> we, we know about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, tend to follow them around, find out how they work, write papers about it, and then come back and talk about how to overcome some of those things. But most of my time is not at the university at all now. It's running a small business called Thinkwell and running workshops all around Australia, all around the world these days, but just about how to overcome some of those things, starting off with grad students, but now a lot of work with researchers and faculty and academic staff as well about the same issues they have as well, about how to manage themselves and get things done. So yeah. And I think when we first got in touch, we were trying to s- workshops that you were doing for people in the United States, <laughs> you were staying up till all hours of the night to to serve these people around the world. Uh, last Thursday, I was in um, Boston at MIT running a workshop there on called Defeating Self-Sabotage, which is how to overcome some of those things. And uh, prior to that, I was at Berkeley in California doing some stuff over there. So yeah, the, one of the benefits of the online world is you can do this all over the world now uh, without having to leave uh, my home here in Adelaide. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the good thing is research students and grad students uh, are the same all over the world. And so they, they face the same issues. And so the things I talk about are relevant no matter where you are. Well, today we're going to talk about your book, Planning Your PhD. And that phrase that immediately made me think to myself, well, this is not possible. This book must not must be empty inside. You know, you start out with the observation, you say two things uh, constantly amaze us. And then you're talking here about your partner, uh, who also wrote the mm. book. Um, the first is that some very simple ideas about planning can make a huge difference. And the second is how little planning is ever done in PhD research. Mm-hmm. And it just made me laugh. That is so true. And, yes. and, and maybe you've already answered this, but is that failure to plan universal? And why are PhDs struggling so much to plan ahead? Yes. 
Well, certainly it does seem to be fairly universal. Obviously, there are exceptions. There are some people who plan, but by and large, it's not. I was thinking about why wouldn't people do that? And first of all, to be kind to PhD students, they've never done a PhD, so they don't know what's coming. And your previous education does not prepare you for research. You know, it's a, the previous education is quite structured, timetables, curriculums, deadlines. It's all sort of mapped out for you. But then you come to research and you don't know what's ahead. So first of all, you don't know. And secondly, research by its nature is uncertain. You know, things go wrong. And then what happens is people think, well, because I don't know, we just won't plan anything. We will just go along and see what happens. The other problem is that uh, all the advisors and supervisors and uh, faculty, they're all former PhD students themselves. So they went through the same system. And so that's the way they do it as well. You know, we'll just roll along and see what happens and it'll all work out maybe. So, it, yeah, it's a, it's a fairly universal thing. And clearly, now you cannot plan every day of the research, but you can have some broad tools. And that's why I said, you know, some fairly simple planning tools that it can make a difference and can make it more manageable and so forth. So that was why I wrote the book is some of these things that in, in business or in commercial world are fairly standard, really. And so, but how do you apply them to a research context? So that's why uh, the book is there to take some of those ideas and apply them in this context. I mean, that helps me understand how we got here. It is It has become part of the culture. The PI, the, the principal investigator, may have been successful because he or she had some innate talent or some innate ability to stay on track. And so they think to themselves, well, everybody must have this innate ability to stay on track because I did it and now I'm successful. And that's just not true. I think that's my experience as well, is that um, more senior investigators, PIs, uh, they do have a plan in their head, but they never write it down. It's a sort of a mental thing. And they think they don't have to tell people. But if they told the student what the plan was, because they'll know you're ahead, you're behind, where are Mm -hmm. you on track? But they just never tell the student that. And the poor student is there thinking this is all chaos. But more senior PIs, they wouldn't have survived in the role without having some sort of mental plan about how to get places, yeah. But uh, probably not formally trained and certainly probably don't write it down very much and don't tell students about it. Okay, well, you give us the terms and it's really, we may have a a sense of planning or how to plan, but you give us some Mm. of the words to use to describe it. And you talk about this concept called forward planning and I think people will, Mm. they will know it when when you describe it, but can you say what forward planning is and how it's used? Yeah. So forward forward planning is probably the traditional type of planning. Let's say you, you want to build a house. So you want to do any sort of task like that. People have done that before. So they work out what are all the jobs involved? How long is it going to take? You add them all up and you work out it takes you six months or nine months or whatever to build a house. Because, you know, people have done this before. That's forward planning. And uh, people are fairly familiar with that. But it doesn't work particularly well in research. Because in research, you don't know how long things take. <laughs> yeah, how, how long does a literature review take? Well, as long as you like, you know, you can spend the whole three or four or five years just doing literature. How long does an experiment take or writing take? And so this doesn't work particularly well for research. It works well in other areas where it's, where it's fairly well known how things work. But in research, we don't know. And so that, and that's why then people say, well, you can't plan. So so we abandoned planning altogether, but, but you introduced this yeah. idea of backward planning. And yeah. how is that different? What does that mean? Yeah. So, so backward planning, and uh, you might be familiar with this, but backward planning is taken from software development or new product development or whatever, because when, when the software companies are going to release their new version of the operating systems or whatever, they don't say, we're going to keep going at it until we get it right. <laughs> what they do is they say, on the, on the 15th of September, we're going to release the new version of the operating system. Because if they waited until they got it right, they'd never get it out there or somebody would get in the front. So you have to say, no, that's the date and work backwards from there. That's what they do with new product development. You know, they pick a date and work back. And that's what you do with research is you say, that's when we're going to finish 
Now we work backwards from there. And, and sometimes people say, but how do you know when the, when the end date is? And it's very easy for grad students. It's when the money runs out. <laughs> when your scholarship or your grant finishes, that's going to be your end date. Start working backwards from there. And very famously in Australia, that is typically a three-year cycle, right? Yeah, here in uh, different countries are different. Uh, here in Australia, we usually get funded for about three years. Now, nobody finishes within three years, but uh, they usually get an extension. But probably here, around about three and a half to three and three and a quarter, three quarter years is the time frame. In the UK, it's pretty similar. In other countries, it's four. And in the US, it's, you know, five or much longer, really, in, in, in practice. So it varies a lot. We, we just did an episode on the statistics of, of graduate school. And I think the median was six and some change in a lot mm. of places. So, yeah. yeah, in the US, but it's, I think to be, it's challenging. To be, to be fair, though, your system is a bit different because you have that coursework element up the front, which which doesn't really happen here. So when we're talking in a PhD here in Ireland or in uh, Australia or Ireland or the UK, it's really the research component. The coursework stuff has been done either as an honours or a master's degree beforehand. Got it. So, so this idea of backward planning, of starting with, I have three years to finish or I have I want to finish in five years or six years whatever my number is Uh, this still feels really abstract to me so you've Mm. developed some tools to help students lay out those concepts in order can you talk about that a little bit yeah, so like as, as, as part of the work we did, we developed a series of tools, and again, which are very simple tools, really, but we, the tools that aren't used. And so one of the tools is a, a, a thesis planner, and it's basically here in the Australian version, you take the three years and you map out what are all the stages you're going to go through. Not, not down to each day, but looking at broad levels, like for most people, the first thing is literature review, sitting down, reading what's been done already. Then you may have to develop a proposal or a plan or some sort. Then you have to go off and write get ethics applications or approval for that. Then you have to go and gather your data, analyze your data, write it up. So they're all put out in the planner and you can sort of move the little bars around and work out how do these things fit in. And I can't tell you how long each one is going to take, but it gives you a sense of what does the whole thing look like. And I'm always amazed when I show it to students because they go, oh, that's what it's going to look like. Because when they start out, they have no idea what's coming ahead. You know, we'll just do the next thing. But here's a little map to say this is what it might look like over the next um, three or four years. I should say all, all those tools that I'm talking about are, are, are on the website to people to download for free. And so you can modify them and change them. And if you, if you don't if you want to see what a thesis planner looks like. We'll have a, a chance to talk about some of your other books, too, because I think there's a lot of interest there. The thing I like about this idea of the thesis planner is you put some of these stages in and you point out that you may notice there are segments that really need to get done first. So if you need uh, approval from the IRB or something, there's some external uh, collaboration that has to happen in year two or whatever it is. You better get that started today because if you wait to get started in year two, it's too late. That's right, because because things take a long time, like ethics approval is a very common one, takes a long time. You can't go and gather data until you get your ethics. And you can't get you can't get your ethics until you work out what your methodology is going to be, what tools you're going to be using. So there's a sequence you have to follow through. And as you said, if you wait until the day before, too late, because that's going to take another you know, three months or six months to go through. So yeah, that's where the planning has to happen. And some people don't like planning, but if you don't do it, everything is last minute crises. And what we know, certainly from the last year, is there'll be lots of unexpected crises going along. And so certainly with some of these things, you can work out what's the sequence of activities and start putting them, putting little plans in place with those. Yeah. And and if we're talking about knowing how long something takes, I, I've mm. never done a literature review. I don't know how long yeah. that's going to take. I'm Maybe I'm an optimistic person and I think that <laughs> experiment numbers three is going to, you know, it's a two week yeah. process. It's so easy. 
how do we know? Because we've never done it. Yeah. yeah, and generally people are wildly optimistic. You know, I think, oh, it's, it's all going to happen really quickly and it's all going to happen smoothly as well because I'm going to work hard. And of course, uh, so there's a few rules uh, for that. Is First of all, yeah, people have done things before. You might never have done a PhD, but I'm sure you read articles before, you know. So if it took you two hours to read an article last year, it'll probably take you two hours this year. You know, you can use your past experience as a bit of a guide. But also, um, you, you have colleagues and other students, so you could ask them, how long did it take you to do that? You know, what's your guide on that? If you're working in a lab, you could ask other people, how long did they allow for that experiment? That gives you a clue. But this is when you could also go to your advisor and say, how long should I allow for this? You know, they, and they have this mental model, but they don't tell you what it is. But if you ask the questions, they might give you an idea about how long it takes. And, and the last little one is, let's say you're doing something really quite novel that no, you really don't know. What I would suggest then is do a little pilot. <laughs> do one little thing, work out how long that takes, and then multiply that. If you have to analyze 100 samples, <laughs> start on one work out how long that takes, and then multiply by 100. That gives you a bit of a sense about how it works. And so you don't know exactly, but you can get a bit of an idea about how long things are going to take. And inevitably, you'll be wrong. But there's a phrase that says it's better to have a bad plan than no plan at all. And because if it's, if it's wrong, you can fix it and you can have another go at it. So, But people go, oh, it's wrong, so just throw it all away. And they go, no, you just learn from that and revise the plan. I like that. And and I, I copied a quote uh about using an estimate and, and i really love this it says we advise you to double your first guess if the process mm -hmm. is complicated like it uses a computer program you don't know multiply mm -hmm. by five and if the process depends on other people participants people. collaborators multiply your estimate by 10 and i think yeah. just having that that concept in your mind okay i'm going to be doing something you know I'm, I'm making a guess multiply by two i've got people involved just be prepared for it to take a long time because yeah. again, people are wildly optimistic. They think because I send out a survey, everyone's going to drop everything and send it back to me. No, they're not. They have busy lives. It'll take them 10 times longer than you need. Or you, you show something to your advisor. It might not take them an hour to read it. It'll take them two weeks to get it back because they have other things to do. And so this is where people get very stressed. They set themselves very unrealistic targets for themselves. So, yeah, so, so there are some rules of thumb. You know? But also people should learn from experience. You know, As you go through this, well, last year, it, went, it took that much longer. This year, I should learn from that as well. That's excellent. So, so then you move on to this idea called rolling planning, and it's it's a mm. little bit different from what we did with our thesis mm. plan and, and the backward plan. What is rolling plan? Yeah. So, so what again? High achievers that once they start planning, what they want to do is let's plan out every day of the next five years. What am I going to be doing in two years' time? This day, two years' time, three years' time. And of course, there's no point in doing that because things are going to change. Mm. So that's when what you do is you have your broad plan, but then you, that's over three or four or five years. But then you'd say, okay, by the end of this year, one year, what am I going to get done? And you have a bit more detail. And then for the next six months, more detail. And then as you get down to the next month, a lot of detail. And then for next week, a great deal of detail. And then this rolls through. So there's no good planning in detail. What am I going to do next year? But I should be planning in detail what I do now. And then it rolls way through the whole lot. So that's the idea of you have, you have a certain degree of uncertainty. But as you get closer to where you are right now, a bit more clarity and, and numbers on things. And you have tools in the book. It's, a, it's worksheets. You can do a six-month plan that is mm -hmm. more specific than your three-year plan or your five-year plan. Yeah. But it's not yeah. daily tasks, uh, and then a weekly yeah. plan, and mm. and I wanted to ask, how do you, how do people make that weekly plan or some of these more specific planning steps a habit? Because I could see myself yeah. getting really excited about it, maybe doing mm. it once, and then letting yeah. it fall off. 
that, that's what everyone does is they get very excited, download all the tools, do them, and then put them in their filing cabinet and never look at them again. And um, so the, the very simple model I, I suggest for people is uh, at the end of the day, let's say when you get to five o'clock today, you spend about five minutes planning out tomorrow. You get out the tool for tomorrow and you plan that out. Then when you get to the end of tomorrow, you plan out Wednesday and you just at the end of every day, you plan out the next day. When you get to Friday, you probably spend about 20 minutes or 30 minutes planning out the next week. And then when you get to the end of April, you probably spend an hour or two planning out May. And what happens is then planning is just something you do every day. It's not something you do on special occasions. It's just part of what you do all the time. And that works then because as things change, you can keep updating the plan. So it's not like this fixed thing that's stuck on the wall and never changes. It's we have to keep modifying this every day along the way. I like that. And I like the idea that maybe at the end of the day, I don't have the the mental energy to start a new experiment, but I can certainly sit at my desk. And, 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 and you have this idea in the book, you talk about how a to-do list, which is something that I keep and I think a lot of people keep. Here's my, my checklist from the last six months of things that I've added to. But you suggest mm-hmm. something called a today list. And what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, to-do lists are great and I'll encourage you to keep doing it. But the problem with them is they make people depressed <laughs> because you've got this big, long list of things that are overwhelming. And uh, um, it's, it's really just a list of everything in your head that you think you should do. Uh, and, but that doesn't mean they're going to get done. And so what you have to do, a today list is basically like your diary. It's saying between nine and 10, I'm going to do this. Between two and four, I'm going to do this. So what you do is you go to your big long to-do list, you pick one or two of those things and say, this is when it's going to happen. So it's a list with time associated with it. When is it going to happen? And then what I suggest is you put your to-do list out of sight so you don't see it anymore and get depressed by it and work on what's going to happen today. And then tomorrow, you pick another one or two of those items and put them on the list, and they get done. And so you need both, but uh, the to-do list on its own isn't enough. That's just a list of all the things I have to do, but it doesn't tell you when they're going to happen. That's right. And something will always come in front of them if I don't carve out time in my schedule. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And and so this kind of leads to the the next concept, which which to me, I've already talked about it to several people because it's just such a powerful idea. You talk about how choice is a powerful demotivator. And that's that's a little bit surprising. Can you talk about the paradox of choice and how it impacts student productivity? Yeah, you're right, isn't it? You, you sort of think having more choice is good for you, really. Isn't that great? Everybody and, wants uh, choices as options. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but, uh, that, that, the book, there's a book written a few years ago by an American psychologist, Barry Schwartz, called The Paradox of Choice. And, and the essential idea behind that book is, in the modern world, lots of choice. But two things happen when you get lots of choice. The first one is you get paralyzed. You look at all the different types of juice on the shelf or all the different types of milk or whatever, and the more you read about them, the more paralyzed you become. (laughs) But the real paradox is once you pick one, your brain is always going to be going, maybe it should have been the other one. So true. That's the paradox. The more choice you have, the less happy you become. And but but that's why I like working with PhD students because the whole thing is all this choice. What should I do next? Nobody's watching, really, so you get a lot of freedom. And that sounds great. But then you don't do anything because, should I do this or do that? I don't know. And so you get paralyzed. And then you get, get carried away checking emails or on Twitter or something like that instead because I don't know what to do. So that's the paradox of choice. And uh, it's uh, it's one of the reasons I said I like working with research because you, you get a chance to, to explore that idea and see lots of choice. So that's the problem. Uh, the solution to it is very easy, though. And that is remove the choice. Because <laughs> if you went down to the supermarket and there was only one, 
Yeah, if you sat down at your desk today and there was a deadline at five o'clock today, suddenly you get focused. You forget everything else and say, that's the one. Mm -hmm. So that's that sort of ability you have to learn is that ability to focus and say, forget about the 15 other ones. This is the one I'm working on right now. And, and that's really hard when, you know, it's a very unclear, vague thing. How do I know which one? And high achievers are always thinking, maybe it should be doing something else. That's why they're always guilty all the time. Um, yet they're always thinking I should be doing something else. And so that's where the guilt comes from, because they're never quite sure what they should be doing. But the solution is narrow down to this. This is the one I'm doing. Forget about all the others right now. The way to overcome this is to be very clear about what I call TNT. And TNT stands for the next thing. So when your brain goes, what about all the other ones? You have to go, no, I'm not worried about them. Right now, my job is write five paragraphs or my job is analyze two little bits of data. Stop thinking about next week, whatever, but no, I have to do this next thing. And that's hard because your brain is high achievers, want to do lots of things. But no, you've got to focus down and say, this is the one I'm working on right now. I'll deal with the others later. So on the one hand, it's nice to have the big plan. But the solution then is this is the one I'm doing right now and focus on that. And, and you have to keep making that next thing really small until it sort of seems doable. Like saying something like do my literature review doesn't help too big it has to be it has to be read one article or read the abstract of one article because high achievers just make it too big you know i have to do everything and they can't do that and and you point this out and it's been my experience that even if it's a tiny 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 step mm. it will launch you onto the next step mm. so um i'm i'm kind of this way about cleaning up the kitchen at night i'm like oh, i'm just <laughs> tired and i don't want to do it and i like i'll just put i'll just put the silverware in and i drop the silverware mm. in and then i'm there like washing a pan and everything is yeah. done but it's getting yeah. over that first tiny step. Yeah, just getting started. And again, in a PhD, it's hard. There's some, there are some really hard jobs in a PhD, like literature review is one, or analyzing a whole heap of data or something like that, or applying for ethics. All those things sound really hard. But when you think about it, how are they going to get done? <laughs> one little bit at a time. I have to download the ethics forms. I have to read the first line. So you put all those little steps together. That's how you get it done. But people keep going, oh, it's so hard. I can't do it. Yeah, as we're cleaning up your house, do the first little step. That's why, again, I think people should almost stop thinking about doing a PhD. Because when you think about that, it's just so big. What you have to do is, no, for the next week, I'm just focusing on this little part. And do it and you feel a bit better then. And you've got such great quotes from students and other people in the in the side notes. There was one that was really compelling. The student was saying, I review my my thesis plan every six months and it allows me to get maybe a little off track and to readjust, uh, but not get three years off track. Right. Or to, which is which is what happened to me in graduate school. You look back and it's like a year has gone by and I didn't get any of the things done that I thought I was going to get done. And and so just having those nice checkpoints, I just love the idea of planning tomorrow today so that the next thing, the TNT is is ready. The fuse is there. and We're ready to go in the morning. Because, again, a lot of students say to me all the time, I have no idea how I'm going. I have no idea where I am on the whole thing. And that's where I think that's really sad because you should have a little idea. And that's where having a plan could be helpful. And even if you are not, if you don't meet the plan, at least, you know, I'm ahead or behind. And then you could talk about that with your advisor and say, do we need to speed things up or drop out an experiment or something like that? But if you have no plan at all, it's just sort of big chaos ahead and so that's when people get and that's very demotivating because no matter how hard you work you still have no idea am i getting closer so that's why having some sort of plan written out like that which keeps getting modified and changed and is always wrong but at least it gives you a sense i'm making a bit of progress towards this thing and and as you said if you are behind at least you can do something about it then 
Yeah, and, and we have just scratched the surface of this book. There is so much useful information about, uh, I love the section on meetings, about how to schedule mm. them, what should happen during them, why they're important. Um, when you get your committee together, when you when you meet with mm. your advisor, here's how to handle those situations because they are really imp- aspects of writing, how to put your, uh, put your pen on your paper or your, your keyboard to work. Tell us about some of the other things that you've written and where people can find you online uh, and where they can find your work. Yeah, look, I said I've been probably doing this work for the last 20 or so years with research students all around the place. Uh, And probably the first uh, workshop and book we wrote a long, long time ago was called Defeating Self-Sabotage. And that was things like overcoming procrastination and uh, perfectionism and all that. And the other one that's probably really popular is The Seven Secrets of Highly Successful PhD Students. And that is, what would you do if you weren't avoiding these things? And there's one called turbocharging of writing because that's the one that people really procrastinate about is writing, you know, not so, so bad about doing the reading, might even get the data, but writing is when it's really hard. And so all those books are on our website, but also on the website, lots of free resources that people can download for free tools and planners and stuff like that, that people can get for, for free and just download and modify for themselves as well. Uh, a lot, also lots of tools there for advisors that can help them help their students as well. And so they're on the website, which is I think well dot com dot au or if you type my name into google it should come up pretty quickly and we'll post a link to that in the show notes are you doing any yeah. upcoming workshops that that people may be able to get into or are they specific to universities yeah most of my universities are working with, uni- with specific universities and so they get advertised within universities but uh, get in touch with your university and ask them to put something on so that would be the, the plan so yeah so yeah i'll be running things all around the world but um uh, happy to talk about these with people. So if people want to get in touch, feel free to do that. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And I think it is in the university's best interest to help students get better at planning too. This is not just <clears throat> making student lives better, but but this is going to make graduate training better. And, and help people complete on time. But also the key thing, I suppose, is actually maybe enjoy the process or be less sort of daunting yes. or that you could actually... Um, I, I think it's really sad when people are doing this really exciting thing, but often very miserable or unhappy about it when it should be one of the best parts of the whole thing. And so that's where some, as I said, some fairly simple tools, you can't get rid of all the uh, the upsets or downsides, but uh, you can make it a lot more manageable and uh, enjoyable along the way. Well, Hugh, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, for working out the time zone math to get us together in the, in the same moment. And uh, I, I hope you're safe and we hope to have you back sometime to talk about some of your other work. That'll be that'll be fantastic, and uh, hopefully in person at some point as well when we all get to travel again. So that'd be cool too. That'd be great if you ever make it to North Carolina, or if I can ever make it to Australia, which would be amazing. <laughs> all right, thanks so much. Okay, Dan, I am reminded of the age-old saying: "Failure to plan is a plan to fail." <laughs> it is. It is true, and I think that explains a lot of my graduate school experience, Josh. You know, but it is so easy to do. This may not be true, but I would say at least during our day, maybe students now are more wise uh, or have, uh, you know, have a lot more resources available to them or or just are more savvy. But I felt like the default state for us, for grad students, when we were going through the process was not necessarily to come in with this long-term end in mind, big picture plan, but I think we share the same experience, Dan, where it was very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day challenges and completely have your head buried in the sand and lose 
track of the big picture goal of why you were there. I, you're so right. Um, I was going to joke that we really just wanted to enjoy the journey, Josh. We didn't want to think too much about the destination, (laughs) but I think the reality was, uh, we just, we didn't plan properly. And, um, I, that's, that's, as I've been reflecting on the interview, um, this week, that's one of the things that stuck with me. That's if you don't have both the long term and the short term, it doesn't work. Right, because what we did was a lot of short term. I'm gonna keep doing this experiment. I got to make this experiment work. I'm planning tomorrow to do this experiment. I've got my time points for this experiment. Never considering like, does this experiment help me <laughs> write a paper? Does this experiment help me graduate? It may not. And if you're focused completely on the short term goals, then very quickly that's where the motivation goes out the window because it's not the short term day to day experiments that were really the driving force that brought you to grad school or brought you into science in the first place. And they probably have very little to do with your eventual career goals or things that you hope to accomplish in your life. I think you almost detach the reasons for being in science or being in grad school uh, from what you're doing day to day. And, you know, the pipetting of small volumes of liquid back and forth in and of themselves that's not why ultimately you're there. It's so true. And and th- he's got quotes in the book from students. And I wanted to, re- I referenced this one, but I wanted to read it because I think it really captures it. This was from Ellen Greenham, uh, who is a PhD candidate at Murdoch University. She said, I found I had to keep revising the plan because life happens. And even the best laid plan may need tweaking and some fluidity over time. I reviewed, this is referring to her kind of three-year and six-month plans. She said, I reviewed the plan every six months, kind of like an interim between annual progress reports. When there had been slippage for any reason, I then saw small gaps between the plan and reality rather than gaping black holes of lost time. This was easier to deal with as I readjusted and easier to see where or how I could make up a little of the lag. Psychologically, overall, this helped me feeling like I was running the project rather than the project running me or even running away from me. And I think that really struck me because I remember a, a new school year starts in year three or four and you look back and you say, well, what did I get done? I don't even know. Am I closer or further? And and the traditional question, oh, how, how much time do you have left as a PhD, which I think is a really mean question. It's always, oh, about a year. About and it doesn't matter months. when you ask that It's question. about 18 months is always the answer. Exactly. Yeah. When, when I was listening to this, I didn't mean for my mind to go here, but, you know, I really came back to thinking that a more structured timeline for a graduate PhD program would be better, right? Because I think the challenge, and I loved I loved how he talked about how you all discussed the paradox of choice. I can think about for myself, one of the, the reasons why, at least I told myself or I thought, um, you know, I, I sincerely thought that I was drawn to science was, wow, you have all this freedom to manage your own schedule and you're not clocking in and clocking out. You know, I can really do what I want. And while that's sort of true, the unlimited open-endedness of it became paralyzing at times, you know, and I think I've realized that even in my work now, you know, there, there are seasons, there are periods of time, like we're just coming out of our admission season, where I have so many tasks on my plate and I'm so busy, but that's a much more tangible period of time where 
I know this is what I need to do and this will be the end result of it. And so I'm working hard, but I'm not drawn into this like anxious bubble where I'm like, wow, this whole day is my oyster. What should I do today? Uh, Then I'm almost overwhelmed because I don't know where to begin. And I feel like graduate school most of the time is kind of like that. And that's not always a good thing. Yeah. And and you don't, you might have longer term goals for your career or for your office or for programs that you run, but you're not thinking, oh, on Tuesday, March 4th, 2024, here's what I need to do that day. And and so you can kind of roll into the different horizons. And I think that's really important to have that flexibility. But but the paradox of choice is a, it's a real thing. And, you know, you will know in your day when you have hit that paradox because your brain will go, I should probably check my email. I probably should see what's happening on Twitter. What's <laughs> scroll through your Instagram. You know what I mean? You will you will feel the pull toward that other event that calms your brain down because you don't have to make a decision. It's just whatever the feed gives you next. Well, and it's not always completely obvious what the consequences are for not doing that thing that day. You know, Dan, this makes me think about, do you know what one of my least favorite restaurants is to go to? I can make a list. It's the Cheesecake Factory. Have you been to the Cheesecake Factory? They're not going to sponsor us, are they? Uh, Not anymore. Not after I'm done. (laughs) Have you been to... Have you been to the Cheesecake Factory, Dan? Yes, once a long time ago. Uh, are, do you have any recollection of what the menu or, or what variety of food the Cheesecake Factory it, serves? Well, I remember the menu being a not like it's a book, it's a tome. Yeah, it's ridiculous. There's like a page for Italian food, a page for Asian food, a page for American food. A page, I mean, it is literally every genre of food imaginable. And so, you know, I go to a pizza place. I'm like, cool, I'm getting pizza. Maybe I have to decide what topping I want. I'm going to a burger joint. I'm getting a burger. But I go somewhere like that. Where do I begin? Like, I'm almost miserable. It's like, well, fine, I'll just have the cheesecake because that's at least in the name. And it's it's not a good thing. And I, I think that's what grad school can be like if you're not careful. Um, and, and I want to circle back too, Dan, to, to what, I, what I was getting at earlier about why I think this open-endedness of even the time schedule of a PhD can really create a lot of anxiety because, you know, I think I would love to see a study looking at, you know, we've talked a lot about you know, mental health in graduate school. And a lot of what we have read has been really centered on the United States where, you know, as, as you all spoke about in your interview, there's a pretty big difference in time to degree uh, in the United States from certain places in Europe, certainly Australia. And there could be different reasons for that. But I would be interested to know if a lot of the, the anxiety and mental health challenges in the United States uh, academic system with regard to PhD programs also exists in countries where there's a much more structured, finite endpoint to the, the program. Because I think what that does, it more integrates what Hugh is talking about, about being more intentional about intentional about making a plan that's more just baked into the structure of the program than it is in the United States. Um, and I think that has, I think there are consequences to having the open-ended structure that we have in our country. Yeah. You might cry a little bit. Um, you know, some of the chapter titles here are, uh, chapter six is the proposal and or confirmation. Chapter seven is the middle year (laughs) and chapter eight is the final year. 
uh, and and we, we you know he and I talked about this. It's it's because we throw coursework in the United States in the beginning two years of of PhD and things get dragged out. Um, but you're right. I think having enforcing a little bit of structure from the outside would help everybody. And and that leads to a, something that I wanted to bring up, Josh. I've been thinking about this. I am not a natural planner, right? It's not in my name. I want to leave options open. I want to decide at the last minute and, and do what I feel like doing. Um, but at my work, there's a structure in place to make basically what he's talking about. We have a three-month plan where we kind of set these big these are usually big projects that it's going to take a lot of people or a lot of work. We try to just make something measurable, but it's like, this is going to take a while. Uh, but this is, this is one of our goals for this three month period. We call it a quarter in the business world, Josh. I know that's, <laughs> are you talking about a uh, Q, Q2, Q, uh, yeah, yeah Q2. Okay. So we've got a Q2 plan now. Um, we have weekly plans individually. So I write my own weekly plan. I said, these are like the four or five things I think I can get done. And then, in Slack, we have a daily, what we call a stand-up, which is like, yesterday I finished this, or this is what I worked on. Uh, today, I plan to work on this. And you just roll that to the next day. Yesterday, I worked on this. Today, I plan to work on this. So that, you know, there's no there's no person that's, I guess my manager gets to look at it and say, oh, do you need help on this? I'm going to help you, or I'm going to get you help for this. But it's up to me to decide what I'm going to work on today. But just that process, just that check-in every morning that other people expect to see what it is I'm going to be working on makes me think about it. And when I think about it, then I, you know, I can say I either did these two things that I thought I'd do or I didn't. But I don't go weeks without doing anything. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you a couple questions. So that, that process of, of documenting your plan for the week and even for the day, uh, so that's a required part of your job to do that. I would say it is, yeah, the whole team yeah, does it. There's an expectation that you'll do that. That's right. And then would you say that by doing that, that increases your level of accountability to do the things you say you're going to do and to move forward? Yeah, and I think it's more internal than external. It is It is me, you know, in myself. I say, well, I said I was going to do this. I better do, you know, I want to do this. Yeah. Um, I, I've never had anybody say, why didn't you get done the three things and you only did two of the things? That's never happened. I think it's more about, do you have a plan or not? And if you don't quite get to the end of it, that's part of life. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I meant accountability in a more holistic view too, not accountability like your boss is going to get mad at you, but accountability to yourself and your own professional goals. And I think that's phenomenal. And, you know, Dan, would you say, I, I'm going to ask this really plainly, do you feel like you are happier since you've been in a more private sector that's had those types of requirements than you were when you were in a more open-ended academic setting? Well, and I can answer that question for not just the public or private sector. I've been in private sector jobs that didn't have clear planning and clear goals. And, and I definitely, I appreciate having that structure. It it does something else for me, Josh, and it's something that I know PhD students would like. When I come to the end of, you know, if I'm going to look back six months and I forget day to day what it was that I worked on, I can go back to these documents, you know, they're all online, and see, oh my gosh, six months ago, we didn't have this tool that I built. And I forgot that I built it because I built three things after that or whatever. But I can look back and see we had this goal and we met it. We had this goal. We met it. I don't look back at the day-to-day stuff very often. 
Yeah, th- this is really fascinating to me because I-, I know people are different. Like we all have different ways of thinking about things. But I can really look back and even think about myself now. And and you might have been this way too, Dan. Think about how I almost would have been drawn if you asked me, Josh, do you want a working environment that's really structured? Or do you want a working environment that's really open-ended and free-form? I'd say, oh, open-ended, totally. Totally don't want the structure. Exactly. Uh, but there is a consequence. There are challenges to that. And But I think what what we are learning here, what we learned from, from Hugh and, and his book and, and what you all talked about is in any setting, there is a benefit to generating that structure for yourself and, and, and to help yourself accomplish the goals that you have um, from that PhD program, from that work environment, uh, from whatever task you're, you're working on. Yeah. And I like the, I like the thing you talked about with having some accountability, whether it is, just that you have talked about it with your advisor and your advisor says, yeah, these look like good goals so that you know at the end of whatever the next period is, you're going to come back to your advisor and say, hey, I got two thirds of these done, which is great. You know, that's that's a reasonable level to achieve because we've talked about how easy it is to overestimate what you're going to get done. Um, but just having that external person who is at least going to notice, um, I think it just keeps you on track and keeps you focused. And if it needs to change, then you can go change it, you know, and you don't have to wait a year before you to revisit it. I'm not in grad school anymore, but I'm going to take some of these thoughts and ideas with me and I'm going to put it out to our listeners. You know, maybe maybe try this out. If you feel like you're spinning your wheels, you feel like you're coming into lab, you're sitting down more days than not, and you're just sort of staring at the ceiling or staring at your email and wondering what you should do next. Um, you know, maybe utilize some of these tools. Think about making a plan. Think about creating some of this structure around yourself and around your work and and try that out for a week. If it doesn't work, you can go back to the old way. Um, also, Dan, I want to make sure we remind our listeners too uh, the name of this book if they want to get some worksheets, uh, get some get some structure, I guess you could say, about how to even do some of these things. Uh, give us that info again, Dan. Yep. It's Planning Your PhD by Hugh Kearns and Maria Gardner. And it's subtitled, All the Tools and Advice You Need to Finish Your PhD in Three Years. Whoa. I don't know that that is a guarantee at every university. Or your money but, back. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's at ithinkwell.com.au. And we'll post a link to all this stuff. All right, Dan. Well, thanks for, for doing that interview. Uh, gave me a lot to think about. And I hope this is helpful to some of our listeners out there. All right, Josh. Well, if listeners have a question or topic idea, obviously, we would love to hear them. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We would also love it if you would share the show with your colleagues, friends, fellow students. Uh, That helps the listenership grow and helps keep the conversation going. Uh, If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. So go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We appreciate the beer money and thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. All right, Dan, always a pleasure. I'm looking forward to your, uh, I'm looking forward to your memory B cells forming uh, between now and the next time we podcast together and counting the days until we can do this face to face in the studio. I will pencil something in for Q4. (laughs) Sounds good, Dan. Let's plan on it. (laughs) Okay. See you later, John. All right. See you then.